poets. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be here as your children, as your adopted ones, those who are in Christ Jesus forever, those who are promised resurrection from the dead through your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray right now also for those in our congregation who can't be here right now. We ask that you encourage them and give them more faith and hope in your plan for them and bring them back to us soon here so we can be with them together face to face. And Father, most of all, we are grateful and thankful that you sent your son to take sin and death out of the way for good once for all so that we can live in the great hope of the resurrection which Jesus accomplished for us all by his own example. Father, we ask right now that you help us concentrate on your word, help us forget about the details of life, help us to submit to your spirit right now and ask for your guidance and uh, teaching. We ask all these things in the name of our precious Lord, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Resurrection Sunday, special part two. So we're going to recap Sunday's special message, which was just wonderful. Um, I get the joy and privilege of doing that, which on a topic like that, and with all of the great things that came out on Sunday for our encouragement, it's just like fun. It's actually fun to be up here to recap a topic like this. I mean, how can it not be, right? So don't be jealous. I'm just teasing, but don't be jealous. Sit back and enter into the joy of the Lord as we again celebrate his resurrection and our inevitable resurrection as believers. Turn in your Bibles again to 1 Peter 1, verse 1. 1 Peter 1, 1. There were so many things on Sunday that as believers we could grasp onto, we can hold onto for joy and for confidence. This whole topic does that, but a few key things came out, which we'll probably get to today. 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Let's just pause there for one second. How can Peter say that to us? How is this possible for us to have his grace and peace in the fullest measure? Because of the status and the position given to us in Christ Jesus. And thus the resurrection also will come because of that. So it's really a bold statement, but Peter says it almost matter-of-factly because it's ours to possess. He says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we talked about on Sunday how the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate proof of our faith. And remember, Holy Scripture even says that Christ was raised from the dead for our justification. So on the board, remember this, Romans 4.25? It's been a while since we've visited this verse. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Without his resurrection, what hope could we possibly have of being justified on our own? We know the answer is none, although unbelievers don't realize that. But without the resurrection, we would have no hope of being justified in God's eyes. Our life would have an end to it. It would have to have an end to it in terms of death and then judgment. Another question to think about. Can a man live forever based on his own willpower? By the way some people out there act, you would think that they believe that's true. Can a man live forever based on his own willpower? Many arrogant unbelievers indirectly say this. They live like they're never going to die. I've met people in their 80s and have conversations with them about life and death and you know, where you go when you die. They're like, ah, I got a long time left. They li- really say that with a totally straight face. I have a long time left. I'm not going anywhere. What world are that you living in? Right? Well, that's sin deceiving them into thinking they're all set and somehow they're going to make it and not have to face death where everyone else does. That's the strength of human pride and, and supposed willpower. So where would we be without the resurrection? Hopeless. We know that our sinfulness could never enter into the presence of the holy God of the universe. That's an impossibility. It would ruin heaven, quote unquote. It wouldn't be heaven anymore. Not only that, but God is holy and pure, and he can't look upon sin. So the only option is for God to do all the work, for God to somehow make us clean, And we know that's what he did for us through the blood of Christ. Pastor gave us the following thought on Sunday, which the Spirit apparently wants us to ponder on our own. So I put this on the board for you. God's plan of salvation, let's call it. The only way we will ever be able to enjoy the stupendous things of heaven is if we're made new. In other words, in our current condition, we can never enjoy those things, right? I don't care how hard you try, I don't care how much willpower you have, etc. If we exchange our earthly inheritance for a heavenly one, ponder this on your own, was the message of the Spirit on Sunday. The only way we'll ever be able to enjoy the stupendous things of heaven is if we are made new. If we exchange our earthly inheritance for a heavenly one. So for example... Are we willing to deny our earthly inheritance in our hearts? In other words, what you think about these things is important. What do you think about an earthly inheritance or earthly riches? And are you willing to deny your earthly inheritance in in your heart in terms of what's your priority, what you're looking towards? Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, 
where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be also. So we've been examining ourselves in this area for quite a while now. If you think about it, salvation is a picture of converting from one reliance to another. It's a picture of converting from relying on one thing to relying on another thing. And that's why it's called a conversion. It really is a switch. It really is a turning. Um, therefore, for example, from, from relying on self, we know, to relying on Christ, right? And therefore, from relying on an earthly inheritance to relying on a heavenly inheritance. So this is food for thought. And for some reason, the Spirit told us to ponder this on our own. So I hope you, you know, all go home and just, just look at that principle on the board. Be like, huh, what does that mean to me? Does it mean something to me? Where is my heart regarding earthly inheritance? So again, the point on the board, God's plan of salvation. Sorry about that. Is that working? Okay, mine went down. God's plan of salvation. The only way we will ever be able to enjoy the stupendous things of heaven is if we are made new if we exchange our earthly inheritance for a heavenly one. We need a new inheritance from God to be able to fellowship with Him. Think about it that way. That's what Peter's talking to us about in this chapter. It's granted to us through faith in Christ Jesus. So look again at 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We saw this on Sunday on the board, born again to a living hope. Our hope is based on the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are privileged to live in that hope as our reality. I mean, we shouldn't even have the right to live in that hope, to be able to separate ourselves from the world, to have peace in this world. You know, God could have said, you know what? I'm just going to make you wait and make you suffer because you deserve to suffer anyway for your sin. Even though I'm going to save you, I'm going to make you, quote-unquote, suffer throughout your life and not have my peace until I take you. He said, no, I want you to live in this thing called resurrection life now. I want you to enjoy it. Our hope is based on the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are privileged to live in that hope as our reality, even though it's a future distinction. We have faith that we have an imperishable inheritance already assigned to us. That's what this marvelous passage tells us. And it's all based upon His resurrection. That's the linchpin to the whole thing. As we were reminded on Sunday in uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. What are we believing in if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead? That would be like wishful thinking if he was never resurrected. And this attitude right here, you see how you know, it says your faith is also vain if Christ hasn't been raised? That's the attitude the disciples end up, ended up coming to after the crucifixion. They had a very sad attitude after the crucifixion 
because they didn't yet understand he had to rise from the grave three days later. So they lost what? They lost hope. They lost the living hope, which Christ, by the way, told them about several times before he went to the cross. And they still didn't get it, didn't believe it, maybe weren't ready for it. But they had this tough attitude, this hopeless attitude after the crucifixion. Maybe they thought they'd wasted their time. Why would that be? Because if we just followed this man who did all these wonderful things and he's dead and there's no future, he's gone. What are we living for then? What are we sacrificing for? Without resurrection, there's no hope. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 24, verse 1. Luke 24, verse 1. We're going to see this example tonight of the disciples, an example of no hope. In a way, they were like a proverb, a mini proverb to us. For those three days, they were suffering without hope. Even though they should have had it, they didn't. And uh, we see a couple examples of this. How without resurrection, there's no hope. If the Lord was in the grave and it was all over, what was the purpose? Luke 24, 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb, and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Apparently they lost faith, and therefore hope. These words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter, ironically the one we're reading the main passage from tonight, Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his, ho to his home, marveling at what had happened. Then look at verse 13. We have the road to Emmaus. We see another example of this. Behold, Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Ask yourself a question. Would they have looked sad if they believed the hope of the resurrection? They stood still, looking sad. One of them, 
named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. You can see that's in the past tense. Their hope isn't active anymore. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They apparently lost their hope, the hope of the resurrection. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. One more example we see of this lost hope. There's no hope without the resurrection. Uh, look at verse 36. You're, still, you're in Luke 24. Verse 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? In other words, why did you give up hope? Why are you troubled? Why do, why do doubts rise in your hearts? Have you forgotten the hope of the resurrection? So the disciples are an illustration to us that there's no hope for man without the resurrection. Life would be hopeless, purposeless even. But now we have a living hope proven once for all by our Lord's rising from the grave. It's done, it's finished, it's proven, and we hang our hat on that. So go back again to 1 Peter 1 verse 3. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3. Should have told you to hold your thumb. Maybe next time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here we see Peter through the Holy Spirit giving us the right perspective on life for the believer. What's the right perspective on life for us who have trusted in Christ? There it is. Very bold, very confident statements, by the way, in verses 3 through 5. 
These things, basically, it is said here that they are guaranteed for the believer. Our hope and our future depend on the resurrection. And Peter's point is that we can actually depend on it. And living in this hope gives us freedom and power to live life courageously and confidently, supernaturally. To not be discouraged by the world. Please listen carefully because this came up on Sunday. And this is about the life we're supposed to lead, the life we're supposed to live, the uh, joy we're supposed to live with. Living in this hope gives us freedom and power to live life with courage and confidence, to not be discouraged by the world, but to enjoy the gift of today, despite earthly influences that try to get us to be preoccupied with earthly inheritances. We are not to be discouraged by this world. We're to enjoy the gift of today despite the earthly pressures to look at earthly things and rely on earthly things. In other words, don't buy the lie. Something else Pastor said on Sunday is that on the board here, it's not our right to feel like the world is overcoming us. That's not righteous for a believer in Christ. That's a nice perspective, isn't it? We're out of line when we feel like the world is overcoming us. We're buying a certain lie. Even though certain pressures are real, like you have to go through them, you know, they're uncomfortable, uh, you have to operate in faith in those things to get through them. But the whole point is, this is all temporary and that's all eternal, right? To, to maintain that big picture no matter what we're going through and to not fall for the lie that we're being overcome. Because we're not being overcome. I don't care if we die. I don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if we get put to the stake. We're not being overcome. In the world's eyes we are, but we're not. And up here we can have the peace that surpasses all comprehension. Again, as Pastor Collins said, it's not our right to feel like the world is overcoming us. That's not righteous. In that way, we'd be giving in to the deceitfulness of sin. While Satan wants us to remain a slave, Christ died and rose from the grave to set us free from bondage to the world around us and these earthly inheritances that are so tempting. He's given us a living hope. But the sinful nature wants to convince believers that they don't deserve it and even fool them again into bondage. That you're not free from sin and death, for example, especially how you've been thinking lately or acting lately. So those subtle attacks go on and on and on. Those are all subtle ways Satan tries to deceive us to not living in the living hope. Instead, let's live under some kind of slavery and discouragement and defeat, which is not for us. It's a big fat lie. As came out on Sunday regarding our living hope, the truth is that Jesus Christ has been resurrected and our faith is straight and true. And so we have every right to rejoice in his resurrection. That's a different perspective. I don't know about you, but that's a different perspective to hold, to carry yourself with, to hold and live your life by. We have every right to rejoice in his resurrection. Romans 6.11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves. What do you consider yourself? Every day you wake up, how do you look at yourself? As dead, uh, dead to sin and alive to, to God in Christ? Or do you look at yourself like a loser? Like someone who doesn't deserve it? Yeah, we, we all know that we don't deserve it. But what about the rights you've been given in Christ? Are you just going to put them aside because the world's tricking you into thinking you're unworthy or whatever? You've been given rights through Christ. That was a major encouragement from Resurrection Sunday. And of course, these aren't rights we have on our own. They're rights that have now been granted to us through faith in the conqueror, Jesus Christ. Listen, if you live in an earthly nation and your king has conquered the world and your army has conquered the world, you by default, you know, you're not subject to anyone in the world because you're under the king who has conquered all. So that's what we have. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. We have certain rights granted to us as believers because of the conqueror, Jesus Christ. Conquer the grave. What the heck do we worry about? So again, on the board, our living hope. The truth is that Jesus Christ has been resurrected and our faith is straight and true. And so we have every right to rejoice in his resurrection. Romans 6.11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So I want to share with you something that comes directly from our church website under the What We Believe tab. Hopefully you know that you can go to the church website and find a list and a description with scriptures of everything we believe in this church and why we believe it. So one example of that fits right into our study right now regarding the eternal security of the believer. This is straight from the North Christian Church website. The eternal security of the believer. Once saved, all believers remain saved for all eternity without any possibility of losing their salvation. All believers have the right to personal assurance of their eternal security. That's a different perspective than even a lot of churches have these days. John 10, 27 through 30, Romans 8, 1, Romans 8, 38 through 39, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 8, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24, Hebrews 10, 14, just to name a few, really. And if you want to look those up in your own time for your own encouragement, you should. We're not going to do that today, but look at the second half of this point about eternal security. All believers have the right to personal assurance of their eternal security. This is the idea, this confidence that has been granted to us through Christ because of one reason only, he's conquered death. There's nothing else to be conquered. He's conquered the greatest thing, the only thing that could stop us, quote unquote, that could end our lives. So we have inherited eternal things. As surely as Christ himself rose from the grave 2,000 years ago, that's as surely as every believer is going to be raised from the dead. There's no room for, you know, doubts. There's no room for sitting in the room, hiding from the authorities like the disciples did, wondering who they were following without hope. There's no reason for us to live like that. 
It's that surety that our Lord wants us to live in. He died to give us that right. So don't give up that right. He died to give us that right to live that way. So look at 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As came out on Sunday, we've been given supernatural strength to persevere in the faith. We have. Not only are you granted faith at the moment of salvation, you've been given supernatural strength to persist in the faith, to not quit. That's a gift from God. That's a strength from God. However, our faith must have an object. It can't be vapid. And as came out on Sunday, many of our lessons from the Spirit recently have come down to two categories on the board. Either faith in self or faith in Christ. If we whittle it all down, so to speak. Faith in self, this is the pathway to abiding in death and misery. You want death and misery? Stay relying on yourself. The anti-resurrection life will result. Faith in Christ, this is the way that leads to life, true life, freedom. Even now in this life, freedom from bondage to the things of this world. The resurrection life, we're designed to live, living in the great hope, the living hope. We must have faith in something. In fact, every man has faith in something, if you think about it, even atheists. Faith requires an object to cling to. Who's it going to be? What's it going to be? For those that have faith in self, it's based on earthly facts. That faith is based on earthly facts or earthly things they can see. For those who have faith in Christ, it's based on heavenly facts, including the resurrection. So we might ask ourselves this question. Are you willing to trade your faith in an earthly inheritance for faith in a heavenly one? Are you willing to trade your faith in an earthly inheritance for faith in a heavenly one? Hebrews 11.1 1 in the New King James Version. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Those who cling to trusting in themselves are limited by natural boundaries and by what they can see. Those who have turned to Christ have been granted supernatural perception and they can see the truth of the resurrection knowing God can do all things. It's, it's a supernatural seeing, isn't it? Like You can't even describe it sometimes. You know, we don't always have this faith that we should have. But in the times we do, there's this belief that, as pastor would say, you know, hey, he took his lip off. Doesn't want me to use it. It's more real than this paperclip. It's more real than something solid you can touch and see. That's what faith in him is like. That's what faith in the resurrection is like. As the Spirit also gave us on Sunday about our living hope, 
again, pastor said this, but I put it on the board for you. Resurrection becomes the linchpin of our faith because it is the one proof point that God purposefully points our attention to. If there's one thing we can look at, it's the resurrection. And you might say, well, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. You have 500 plus eyewitnesses that saw it. Do you not believe two eyewitnesses in the courtroom that say they saw somebody do something? We do not believe 500. Resurrection becomes the linchpin of our faith because it is the one proof point that God purposefully points our attention to. It's based on the promise that he is willing and able to rescue each one of his own children from certain death. There's a lot to dwell on there, and there's a lot to rely on right there. Again, resurrection becomes the linchpin of our faith because it is the one proof point that God purposefully points our attention to. It's based upon the promise that he is willing and able to rescue each one of his own children from certain death. We were given wonderful encouragement on this from Jesus himself on Sunday. Turn in your Bibles to John 16, 33. John 16, 33. Jesus was so willing and able to rescue us from certain death that he went all the way to the cross without opening his mouth. And the resurrection was proof that that worked, that his death did pay for everything, for all our sin, took away our judgment. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Your king is saying to you, I know you have to be here for a while, but almost don't pay attention to the people harassing me right now that don't realize that we've already won the war. I have overcome the world. As believers, we've been placed in Christ. This is the victory we celebrate because we're now related to him and he cannot forsake his own. So says Holy Scripture. We're able to celebrate victory over certain death. Certain death. We're free from that. He proved he overcame the world through his resurrection is the point. That's our key proof point, if you will. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 8.37. Romans 8.37. That's why resurrection, resurrection becomes the linchpin of our faith. It's like the proof point we go to that all this was true, all this happened, uh, all this was accomplished on the cross. Romans 8.37 But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was convinced Are we? Do we have the living hope that Paul had? 
Verse 37 says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Resurrection implies overcoming death itself. And if Christ has overcome death itself, what else is there? What else is left? Why do we live worried lives? Why do we even live uh, a worried life about being killed by somebody? Why are we even worried about that? We know we all have to die, thank God, out of this body. And we know that we've overcome death through him. And we're going to see him face to face. So why, what, what are we possibly worried about if Christ has overcome death and judgment? Maybe that's why the Spirit's been harping on us over the years. If we're ever to celebrate anything in this life, it should be this one thing, our victory in Christ. Ultimately, that should be what we celebrate. He's been harping on what is good, what is really good. What is really worthy of celebration? How do you compare earthly things to heavenly things? How do you compare earthly death to eternal death? Right? No comparison. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about eternal life being purchased and guaranteed through the resurrection. And here we are celebrating some earthly thing that has nothing to do with Christ. So the Spirit's been on us for that. Shouldn't we celebrate things that are good according to God and His Word? In other words, so also from Sunday on the board regarding truly good celebrations. Unless something edifies the church, the body of Christ, or advances the gospel of Jesus, then we must step back and ask, how is it that this thing I'm celebrating is bringing glory to God? That's a fair question, isn't it? Is what I'm celebrating bringing glory to God? And if not, why am I celebrating it? In other words, plain and simple, does whatever it is you're celebrating bring glory to God or bring glory to man? Because it's one or the other, really. Kind of has to be. In view of all the truly good godly things we can and should be celebrating, why do we let, why do we allow ungodly worldly things to be something we celebrate? As believers now, listen, there's, a minority of believers in the world, a minority. Even, even if there are uh, believers out there that are saved, many don't follow the word like they should. Is that fair to say? So they're not sticking to it. They're not, you know, holding the ground, standing firm in the faith. So we have that opportunity. We're here. That's why we're here. I mean, we're here to learn and to be good soldiers for Christ Jesus, which many aren't good soldiers. But this is our calling. So why do we celebrate the things we do if they're not bringing glory to God? It's a great question. And I know this is repetition, but bear with me because the Spirit is like, again, harping on us. And when we celebrate things that are worldly, it's like sticking it in the face of God, if you think about it. God purchased us eternal life. We're celebrating earthly life. Right? It's almost like we're celebrating death. We're celebrating earthly things that are destined to die when He's given us eternal life on a platter as a gift through Christ. So, comes back to our heart, I guess. A little more on truly good celebrations. 
Here we have the ultimate promise, resurrection from the dead through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we go celebrate things that are totally unrelated to him and his magnificent eternal promises. Doesn't make sense. Sounds kind of foolish. But we do it. We all do it. If things in your life are in accord or in agreement with God's word and God's will for man, then we should celebrate it. Why not rejoice with those who rejoice, as the Bible says, if their victory is related to God's plan in some way? That's very different from what the world is encouraging us to celebrate, to give glory to man, as opposed to God's truth. So again, on the board, truly good celebrations. Here we have the ultimate promise, resurrection from the dead, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we go celebrate things that are totally unrelated to Him and His magnificent eternal promises. In other words, where do, we, where do you put your time? Like, where do, you, where do you invest your time? Where do you invest your heart? Where do you invest your emotions, even? What are we celebrating? Shouldn't we be celebrating the, the one true King? Or something related to Him and His goodness and His plan and His people? Or is it something worldly? Now, we all fail. We, we know we all fail. And that's why the Spirit's teaching us this, right? Because we need it. He's saying, don't fall for the pressures of the world anymore. We give in to the pressures of the world. How about taking a stand? In grace and love, you can still take a stand. But how about taking a stand? Like, not going along with the crowd, you know what I mean? All my friends are celebrating, so I'll just jump in and and do it. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Why don't you want to ruffle any feathers? Aren't we kind of here to ruffle feathers? In love. Isn't that what we're here for, though? Be like, why why are we celebrating this? Do you have the courage, i.e. the faith, to ask your friends in front of maybe more than one person, why are we celebrating this? And challenge them to think about it. You might just save somebody by taking a stand like that. In grace and love, you can still do it. So turn in your Bibles again to 2 Corinthians 2.14 as we finish up our review. 2 Corinthians 2.14 It's funny how God doesn't let things go with us, huh? (laughs) Might think he's beating a dead horse, but apparently we need it because we're stubborn and we don't see. We don't open our eyes sometimes. 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. How often do we forget the phrase in verse 14? He always leads us in triumph in Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty guilty of that one. He always leads us in triumph in Christ. That's how we're supposed to live. That living hope, that's how we're supposed to live and have no fear. 
How can that be? How can this be? How can, how can it be that he always leads us in triumph in Christ? I, don't, I fail every day. People bring me down every day. How can that be? The reason is because it is finished. In John 19.30, Jesus said it is finished on that cross. And the resurrection is the proof that it is finished. If he said it is finished and died on the cross and never rose from the grave, it would, it would seem like a defeat. It's finished. How do we know it's finished? He's gone. We know it's finished because he came back. And he proved it. So that's how we can live in triumph in Christ every single day. Again, if death has been defeated, what else should we possibly worry about? Even temporary defeats in this world aren't really defeats. See, this is all perspective. This is like raising your vision, so to speak. Look at things from, down, from above, looking down, and see how temporary everything is. Even temporary defeats in this world aren't really defeats. They're temporary tests and setbacks, but they don't affect our ultimate victory, being united to Christ our Lord. That's how a martyr for Jesus Christ has joy and peace in the moment. Because he realizes how temporal this is. And he trusts, he believes, he has the living hope in his heart that he's going to be resurrected. So death is like just a shadow to him. These are temporary tests and setbacks we have in this world. They don't affect our ultimate victory being united to Christ. And we've been graciously granted the faith that overcomes it all. On the board in 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Believers stand firm. Believers have, are given a persistent faith by God. His strength supplies that. So let's close with uh, parts of the same beautiful chapter we closed with on Sunday. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. And we'll just read through most of this again and just let it encourage your faith. First Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15.1 Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at, at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Jump to verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Jump to verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. That's what we read about in 1 Peter chapter 1. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, the last Adam, I'm sorry, that's Jesus Christ, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality. 
Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, once for all. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren. In other words, because of all this truth about the resurrection, of all this um, definitiveness of the resurrection, that it must happen, because of everything we just read, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's quite a build-up to that last verse, if you think about it. And it's just confidence after confidence after confidence and conviction after conviction of the guarantee of the resurrection because of Christ. And he's like, if all that's true, I just told you all that good stuff, all that evidence. Therefore, my beloved brethren, don't give up. Stop being a victim of the world or overcome by the world. You're buying a lie. That is not righteous. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So our final point on Sunday was this. We are celebrating Christ's victory over death itself. Being made members of his body, we abide in a living hope by grace through faith as co-victors knowing that Jesus Christ is the firstfruits of the resurrection of the dead unto life. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you again for all these wonderful reminders, for encouraging and building up our faith, for reminding us our faith is actually a substance, and we have the one great proof point of the resurrection that Jesus Christ has conquered death once for all and that by believing in him, by trusting in him, we have conquered death as well. And we look forward to the resurrection being face-to-face with you by grace through faith. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go and help us share the good news out there with those who are lost and struggling, who need it so desperately. We ask all these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.